Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Welcome to Inside the Archives. I'm your host, Marty Rosenbaum, XRT's digital content producer and all things social media. If you haven't done so yet, you can subscribe to Inside the Archives on Apple Podcasts and Radio.com. All you need to do is go to the library, search for Inside the Archives, hit that subscribe button, and you can get access to every single episode we've released thus far. And if you're so kind, leave us a rating and review so you can tell other people how great or how terrible this podcast is. But if it's terrible, make sure it's in the must listen category because we all love to binge on terrible things. But one thing that's not terrible are cassette tapes. Now, maybe a strange question you're asking yourself. We got rid of those things years ago. Why are you, why are you ranting on this? However, sales of cassette tapes have been on a enormous uptick over the past few years. Nielsen Music reported that in 2018, a total of 219,000 tapes were sold, and this was marked as a 23% increase to the year beforehand, where 178,000 tapes were sold. Even that was a 35% increase from 2016, when 129,000 tapes were sold. While this may be a seemingly small slice of the pie in comparison to streaming numbers and vinyl sales, it's a significant report for a format that was all but declared dead. Unlike vinyl, which had record stores as a haven for consumers to call home, tape enthusiasts had no such outlet, often reverting to the sides of record stores or other do-it-yourself mechanisms to get their tapes across. In an interview with Wired UK, director and chief curator of the Museum of Portable Sound, John Cannonberg, said, We've been detached from music as a physical thing for long enough now that vinyl cassettes don't just feel nostalgic, they feel almost otherworldly. From the moment digital music began to surpass physical music, it was only a matter of time before the pendulum would swing back for a segment of the market. The article went on to cite examples of artists using cassettes as a marketing tool with Billie Eilish offering an exclusive black cassette of her debut album and hip-hop artist Nas hiding golden cassettes of his new album across Manhattan where fans lucky enough to find them would receive access to an exclusive private release party. There's also the matter of costs. According to Performer Magazine, musicians can have professionally made tapes for as low as $1 to $2 per unit. In turn, this allows musicians to pass along the low cost to fans by selling them for much cheaper than a CD or a vinyl. Musicians can also create super small, exclusive runs of a tape, allowing for fans to gain access to truly exclusive releases. So, what, what gives? Why has the cassette seen such a resurgence in recent years? Today, we'll be discussing that with my guest, Doug Kaplan. He's the co-founder of Chicago-based record label, Haosu Mountain, that specializes in releasing music on tape. Doug has built an extensive network of like-minded musicians using cassette tape to share and release music. Today's episode of Inside the Archives will go through Haosu Mountain's origin story, why Doug chose tape, and his thoughts on the format's resurgence, and where it all goes from here. So right now, I'm pleased to welcome Doug Kaplan. Doug, thanks so much for joining us today. Hey, Marty. Thanks for having me in. It's a, it's a pleasure. 
So, Doug, you started House You Mountain. When you decided to start your own record label, did you know that you wanted to release music on tape, or is this just a happen circumstance? Um, I would say it's a little bit of both. So we started in 2012. Um, I was working at another record label called Thrill Jockey, uh, also based out of Chicago, and was learning just about production, um, how to operate a small record label. Um, and at the same time, I was playing in some bands, um, and we didn't have any prospects of release, but we wanted to start going on tour. So the label initially started as a sort of mechanism to sell our own releases. Um, now, the decision to put it out on cassette initially was a no-brainer because of a number of reasons. Uh, like you mentioned, the sort of um, financial aspect of it was really important. Um, when you're a tiny little band and first starting off, especially kind of more like 10 years ago or so, um, I could order a minimum of 100 tapes, but I'd have to order a minimum of like 500 records. So it, the sort of cost investment of putting out a tape when you're just this tiny operation that you don't know if anyone's going to care about it or not, um, there's there's no comparison uh, to, to vinyl. CD is in the middle, but for the sort of experimental weirdo music we were making, um, CD wasn't really a popular format for that. So cassette was kind of like the no-brain option. Yeah, now let's touch on that for a second. Since you are you know, an independently run label, um, you know, take the listening audience through the types of music that you guys created with your bands, um, as well as your fellow musicians that you brought onto your label. Um, well, I would say that the, the sort of beginnings are a little bit different than where we've ended up. So I'll, I'll start with some of the sort of origins. Um, the, the two projects I'm thinking of that I've played in that we started the label to release um, Good Will Smith. Uh, we're kind of a drony, ambient, um, improvised, long-form, free music trio. Uh, we use synthesizers and both traditional rock instrumentation and um, other weird electronics to make very dreamy, uh, soundtracky, um, zony stuff. And then the big ship is a little bit more palatable for my parents. Um, it's kind of like atmospheric, folky music. So there's definitely more, a little bit of singing, a lot of synthesizers, a lot of acoustic guitars, kind of like taking an Allman Brothers record and adding a synth player and slowing it down like mm. 35% or mm. so. Um, now we work in a whole uh, manner of ways um, it's more about musicians that are highly individualistic, um, people that are combining genres and just kind of doing their own thing, creating their own individual world. Um, a lot of electronic music, a lot of sort of carnival-like, circusy, um, like fun music, a lot of um, still sort of like droney, like ambient scapey sort of stuff um we're working with like psychedelic rock bands we're working with um more like conceptual art projects kind of all over the place i would say mm -hmm. now but, you meant yeah sorry but but like all the while like never really sounding conventional never really sounding like something you may have heard before right so it's less focused on 
releasing music that fits a specific genre, but more of a specific mindset mm-hmm. um, from the artist and even the listener's standpoint. Then I guess you put you put that imprint on your label that hey, this may not be a genre that you've opened yourself up to or something that you're necessarily a fan of, but you know it has that stamp of approval because their characteristics fit you know what you guys are going for now when you mentioned earlier that cost basis of releasing a tape was a major factor in why you decided to specialize in tape releases um has that led to you expanding your network or almost meeting these like-minded individuals how much did those tape releases or the trading of tapes play a factor in that um I would say it played a, a pretty big factor in it um, in a lot of ways. Like going on tour, we would be playing with bands and you'd trade tapes with the bands that you like mm. or you trade tapes in the mail with people. Um, it's a underground music really has been a very social thing for a long time. And um, I would say that's just as important of a component as, as the musical component, um, which I know kind of sounds shady or sceny or whatever but um when you're dealing with these sort of fringe art forms it's the people that boost it up more than anything you can't rely on um people just implicitly liking it you have to kind of find your um group of people in your region that are like actually supportive of it and then also support those people um it's it's a reciprocal thing right well and that's from a financial standpoint too it's got to be a lot easier when you can put something out and hand to someone else and you're not spending 25 30 bucks producing it Mm -hmm. and just you know sort of giving it away for free yeah and uh we definitely don't do as much of the giving things away for free now as we did then but um a lot of it's yeah it's like it's like what you were saying with that Billie eilish tape earlier that like the the medium itself leads to this sort of um, easy sharing, easy promotional aspect of it. That um, the size of it, I think, is a really important thing in that regard. That it's something you can just put in your pocket. That if you give to someone at a show, you can put it in your pocket. You can't do that with a record, like right? If you, if you even if you put a record in your backpack and then bike home, it's going to be junked. Right. Like that jacket's going to be junked. CD, you can maybe put in your pocket. If it's a paper one, it's going to get bent. If it's a jewel case, it's going to get cracked. Like it's a very um, handheld format. It's a very hand-sized format, and I think that that um, that really helps with the social aspect of it. Right. Well, and from a musician standpoint too. I mean, you're touring the country and bringing along you know cases that has all your merch, different um, properties of your music. You know, whether it's whether it's a tape or CD or, or vinyl. Um, you know, how much how much does that play into giving others your music on tape? Because it's not going to be damaged as easy if you just decide to throw it in a case compared to like a record, which you got to take great care of. And when you're touring in a van across the country, that's not the most realistic thing. Yeah. I mean, um, I, it's as someone who's done it, it's just as easy to tour with records as tapes. Of course they take up more space, but, um, well, I guess I'm, I'm the kind of freaky person that is very obsessed with boxes. (laughs) So I would never take a box of records on tour without like, like a double, like a perfectly fitting double box, right. like a bunch of cardboard flats. I'm sure that a lot of these things get ruined. Um, it It's definitely a consideration. And um, uh, another consideration is that, like, just on the merch table, like you have this tape that's there. It could be between usually five to eight bucks is usually the sort of, like, merch table 
pricing for it versus the record, which is usually going to be more like 20 to 30. The T-shirts to be around that, too. It's mm-hmm. something that, like, you can bring to your show and put on your merch table. And um, y- you can sell it to people that are on a budget. Like, was like pe- people that uh, don't want to spend another $30 can still walk away with something and be like, ooh, I got this cool trinket. Right. Was this something that um, Housey Mountain decided to do early on in the record label's history? Um, where- yeah, our first releases were on tape. We had a CDR early on, and then another one that was like a vinyl and CD release. We've always kind of been in the zone where we want to release on lots of formats, and um, tape just happens to be the one that we end up releasing on the most because of all these reasons we talked about right that like the the low risk of it all is very important um and now i mean i think a lot of people would say that within the sort of experimental music community the tapes like never really went away that like especially in like 90s and early 2000s like noise music synth music tape was still a very prominent format um in like low editions of course um but then now we we see that like it's you know Rick and Morty cassettes Prince reissues B York mm-hmm. reissues National whatever like a, a, every every like part of the industry is doing it um it, and they never truly went away for the experimental music realm. Well, it's interesting you bring that up because we were talking about prior to the recording how the figures I cited in the Nielsen music study really reflect official releases. Mm-hmm. You look at the top of the charts and it's all going to be. You know, like movie soundtracks or something like you said, Prince's album yeah, getting Guardians reissued, of the Galaxy. right? Which we'll we'll touch on that in a little bit, but that played a huge role in um, the resurgence of cassette tapes. But the experimental scene never really saw a dissipation from it, and I guess when you look at the roots of cassette tapes, it does lend itself a lot in that uh, do-it-yourself DIY. We'll shorten it mm-hmm. from here on out that uh, the DIY ethos where. You know that's not going to get reflected in the total figures. So, in your estimation, is that two hundred nineteen thousand number low? I would say it's very low. I, uh, it's hard to like put a number on it, but I would guess that it's double. Really? Double, wow. Maybe more. Wow. Um, just because it's like, yeah, the numbers you see at Nielsen are numbers that are straight online sales from big companies, store sales, and labels that are big enough to report to Nielsen. <laughs> Um, which I mean, not it's it's not any sort of requirement. It's it's more of like a. It, it doesn't matter. We don't have to. We don't have to tell, That's we don't tell the listeners why. More paperwork. It sounds that. like <laughs> it, it, it's more paperwork. It can be useful for certain things. It's yeah. Not necessarily necessarily that useful for a business of my size, um, but with all the like tiny operations um, that are putting out cassettes, I would think that it's it's much much larger. Um, there are a lot of labels that are similar in size to Haosu um, that are putting out somewhere between like 10 and 20 releases a year. And then there are magnitudes more that are in this zone of releasing between like two and five a year. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have artists that are self-releasing and then you have um, all these things that are happening. So I think that that Nielsen number has to be like a lot smaller because that is the one that reflects what we were just talking about, the Prince reissues, the right. and Morty tapes, the the like stuff that are like the hot ticket items. They're not necessarily like taking into account like, oh yeah, that's Joe's ambient project. He put out like fifty of these yeah. and just like selling them. <laughs> like that's still like cassettes that are sold and uh, manufactured, but definitely not accounted for. All right. Well for you guys, I mean in that in that um 
when when you talk about it being double in size of what's reported, how much do sales at like a show that you do reflect that? Um, or even if you're going to like a tape fair, because mm-hmm. those numbers aren't going to be reported. But how important are those things to getting your tapes out? And have you seen in recent years an increase in people actually purchasing your tapes? Yeah. So um, the majority of our sales are online sales straight to customer. That's like our our bread and butter. Um, I do sell stuff at record fairs. Uh, the people at record fairs tend to come to them to buy a bunch of classic rock records. That's kind of like the scene. That, like, mm-hmm. Even when the Empty Bottle, um, which if you're not from Chicago, is a like a very amazing 400-person capacity um, DIY-friendly venue. Um, even when the Empty Bottle has like record fairs and tape fairs and that kind of stuff, I end up selling more Crosby, Stills, and Nash records than hmm. I do um, the tapes. Um, so the, the, the average tape customer is buying online from people straight. Um, now our artists at their own shows that we work with, they sell a, a good amount of their tapes, especially the ones that are good at hustling. Some of the artists that we work with might not like to hang out at the merch table and that's fine. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's for most of them, it is not their career. And if they're playing a show, it is just like a fun night out. And I can understand why they don't want to yeah. sit selling stuff the whole time. Um, but a lot of them can sell them uh, very well. Um, I have forgotten the full extent of the question. <laughs> that's okay. That's okay. <laughs> it really, really was just looking for a. Uh, you, you did answer it, so I'll give you credit there. I remember uh, like the bullet points of the question, but I, I, I feel like I tackled like two of the three. Well, really, we'll, just we'll, we'll see upon that today. <laughs> <laughs> really, was just looking for a breakdown of that double the Nielsen number, you know, how much of it is done, you know, person to person, much like you buying a shirt at a band's show is done, mm-hmm. um, you know, like at a concert or, you know, citing the record fair. Um, you know, is that a, a, is the purchasing or trading of cassettes really more of a social thing than it is uh, like hopping on Amazon to buy a product, you know, for the consumer? I would say yes. And that the online sales that I'm talking about very much represent like the social media aspect of it like we're very much like a we we get most of our like awareness um established through social media channels Mm -hmm. through facebook twitter and instagram so it's like often it will be like me posting every day being like this tape is coming out this tape is coming out this date like we got this here like this came out last week and you post the thing and then all of a sudden it's like okay like a couple more sales are coming in right so it's like there's that but it's also like making sure that the artists are promoting it to their friends, making sure that like all of the networks that you are tapped into are at least like seeing the album artwork on their feed or something like making sure that, that as many people who give a damn about said project will at least find out that said project has new thing coming out this season. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's a very social thing too, even though it doesn't necessarily happen in the real life sphere. Right. Do you find that community of either consumers or musicians is built through the realm of tape or is it through the music or a little bit of part A, a little bit of part B? Um, the music is, is the most important part. I, I think that that's like, other people will disagree with me on that, but like I, for me, like as someone that is a tape head and a record head and like CDs a little bit, um, that it's the content is like the most important part. But I think that people can sort of 
have a idea of what your project might be like, what your sort of um, politics or ideals might be like if they see that, like, oh, that band is releasing it on tape, that label is doing all these things on tape, um, that it um, it might be some sort of, like, slight coded behavior to be like that person is, like, a, an ally of mine. Um, I think that the social aspect more so exists within, like, the, the concert community that, like, at least for the shows that I go to of, like, Bizarro Electronic Music in Chicago, it's often the same sort of, like, rotating cast of, like, 300 people that I see and then more so, like, the same rotating cast of, like, 40 or so diehards right. <laughs> that I see. And, like, the those people are my best friends now. Like, right. that's just kind of kind of how it works. That, like, the the way that, like, underground music works socially is that people that are both artists and fans and practitioners will all meet up at the show. And that's like their social environment where ideas are exchanged. Right. Um, and one thing about Chicago that I want to throw out, um, is that it's really amazing. The artist community, especially for experimental music is just like so nurturing and amazing. And I think it's like, I think it's because in the other major cities, there's this sort of, um, in LA, there's this, everybody's trying to get famous, everyone's trying to get on the soundtracks, everyone's trying to do this vibe, and in New York, it's like everyone's trying to get the Pitchfork writers to come to their shows, everyone's competing mm-hmm. for like the press coverage, because all the writers are there, and in Chicago, it's like just us. Yeah. It's like for, it's like for the community, by the community, and like made, made for like enjoyment, so... A lot of people will go to these shows to see their favorite artists to get inspired. And then there's the one upping of each other isn't happening in um, financial or acclaim terms. It's happening in like, I'm inspired by you. You're doing incredible work. Like, let me like take it up a notch. It's funny you mentioned that. And this is, this is going to be a bit of a self plug for the podcast, but about a year ago, I recorded an episode with uh, XRT DJ Richard Milne, who for the long time hosted the program Local Anesthetic. It was a 30-minute program highlighting music in Chicago, and we had a conversation based on Chicago music. I asked him, what is the Chicago sound? And he had a really difficult time coming up with the answer. We never did come up with one, which I think was the point of it all, but he echoed a very similar sentiment talking to artists throughout the years about Chicago, is that it really is a place where ideas are welcome creativity is encouraged and you do one up another but you do so in a creative manner and you're not doing it to put the other person down you're really building off the foundations that Mm -hmm. they lay and just continually creating something new so interesting you know hearing that from both um you know richard someone who has been on the media side of it covering it for all these years and then um you doug as a record label owner and musician that that truly is the case in chicago yeah, it's it's a beautiful thing and like it's it's I think that we have a really special music community and that it's um it's in an amazing zone in 2019 especially with clubs like I'm going to do some plugs really quick <laughs> to the Empty Bottle, the Hideout, Cafe Mustache, Elastic Arts. Like those four venues in particular will book just about anyone that doesn't have will give anyone a chance that doesn't have like any sort of um clout i don't know mm-hmm. um for lack of a better word they'll they'll book anyone they will give people the platform to make mistakes and um they are just incredibly accepting of all sorts of 
intersections of culture, and I am very thankful that they're here. Well, I think I'll have to get you on with Richard for part two of that podcast at some point. And I'll just sit <laughs> back and let you two I'm talk because that'll be an interesting conversation. I'm into it. But uh, so, ba- so back to tapes. Um, you know, you, you're coming up on almost a decade of owning and running your own record label. How, how is the resurgence of tapes? You know, you mentioned, you, you did say that in the experimental scene, it's been this steady form of consumption for years. But now that it's entered into more of the mainstream and becoming quote-unquote bigger in recent years how has that affected your ability to either reach new audiences or maybe getting your material into places you weren't when you first started um well it's um it's a little hard for me to like kind of separate the like the industry-wide like trends from like what has happened in our like personal history because the timing has kind of been like hand in hand Mm -hmm. we kind of started in 2012 and that like I feel like all these sort of like tapes are coming back, man. Sort of articles are like really starting to ramp up, like in the 2014 mm-hmm. to 2016 zone. Um, and our sort of story is that like the first two years of the label, mostly self-releasing our own projects, some of our own, um, some of our friends, but mostly like people that are very close to us. And then 2014, 2015, starting to do a few records starting to work with people in more cities starting to sort of spread out and do more like 10 releases a year um in 2016 we got a distribution deal for the first time um this company red eye out of north carolina that handles our physical sales to stores our digital distribution um and a couple of other sort of um custodial things um but it's just kind of been like a constant upward trajectory that like the more the more work and the more time we put into it the more people are caring about it or are aware of it um one thing i'll say is i think in like 2015 that was like a big turning point for us because it was like the first time that we were able to i feel like get people in the media to like take it seriously Mm -hmm. like i think that a lot of people listening know that like most art industries have this sort of stupid way where people feel like you have to pay your dues before you can succeed. Mm -hmm. And I think that in the music industry, it might have the longest runway of anything (laughs) because people really try to take advantage of artists. Um, But um, when, when you, when, when you say um, getting recognition in the media, is that done? So through your music, through, the uniqueness of releasing a lot of it on tapes or what is it? Um, I would say that, yeah, there, there was, there definitely is some of that, that there is the, like, there was the sort of, um, there was the sort of like articles that are like tapes are back and like talking about us. But like at the same, on the other side of the coin, there was just like the sort of media recognition where it would be like an album review. And I'm thinking of these earth eater albums we put out in 2015 that were, were really, really big for us. Um, and those ones were available on both cassette and CD. But then you see like the Pitchfork review and they use the cassette J-card artwork with like the name and the logo instead of the like classic like square right. CD. And that's kind of like, I think of that as a moment of being like, oh, like they're taking these tapes that we're putting out seriously just as they would like an LP or a CD or whatever um, and not thinking of it as a lower 
form of media. Right. Um, and I would say that like the first three years of operation that like 2012, 2015 people really were like thinking of it as this like lower form of media, a sort of thing that you put your like B sides on or Mm -hmm. like your weird live release or whatever. But like this sort of like other format, this special format bonus format, but not the thing where you put the, the main event on it. But I think that when I kind of saw that, um, the J card artwork on pitchfork, that was kind of like a big turning point in my head. And then since then, it's just kind of like the more work you put into it, the more you get out of it. I think that's kind of the same for, for every sort of, operation that like you have to hustle <laughs> yeah. a lot to to get it out there and that i've had the um ability to just put a lot of time into it max my business partners had just more and more time to put into it um and because we're truly freaks and dedicated to this dream <laughs> um yeah this year will be like the year that we put out the most tapes of any year i think we'll have like 15 16 tapes by the end of the year and um pe- people are still people are still taking them seriously people are yeah. still liking them and i i feel feel blessed yeah well a lot of the research i was doing for this podcast reference 2015 is really the first appearances of the cassette tapes are coming back articles mm-hmm. the tape is resurging articles that were coming out and we were talking before the podcast about that performer magazine piece which i cited um i'll link it i'll link to it in the podcast so for all of you listening if you aren't listening to this at 93xrt.com you can find the story there and i'll drop a link in there where you can read it it's like a guide of seven things you must do if you want to release it on tape or seven advantages tape has over vinyl and cds and I mentioned in the intro that you could produce a small run for like one to two dollars a unit, but in years past that number's increased. Yeah, the the production costs have gone up. Um, I'll I'll do a quick little tour of like what has happened in cassette production since I've gotten into it. Um, we've primarily worked with this company based out of Springfield, Missouri, called National Audio, and they're the main they're the main game in town or in the country or really anywhere. Um, and when we first started working with them, they were using tape stock that was made in Korea. And then in 2016, that Korean plant decided they were going to close. National Audio reached out to them and asked to buy their entire supply of tape and to just run whatever they could until they closed. From there, National Audio was supplying every other company that makes cassettes with their actual tape between like late 2016 and the beginning of this year. And the end of last year, I actually thought that like we were going to be done forever Hmm. because there was a point in time where like they were running out of the cassette stockpile and no one had actually figured out how to make more tape Hmm. in America. So I kept on having these calls with my rep and she was like yeah we have like four months left like two months left and then it would be like oh yeah we're out of chrome tape now oh we're out of this kind of tape now and it was like slowly just being like oh man like this is really kind of getting out of the wire and then they were able to repurpose credit card machines into making tape strips i guess Hmm. you look at your credit card and you look at a cassette tape the sort of magnetic strips are pretty much the same size really which is kind of interesting yeah um and now they're making a new kind of tape stock, which they're calling super ferric tape <laughs> stock um, in Springfield. But the uh, 
we're finding that they can't make it fast enough. Right. So our production times are now a lot longer. Um, our, we have to wait longer for tapes. And at first I was like, is this because it's more popular? And it's no, it's just literally because they cannot make it fast enough. They can't make it fast enough to meet up with the demand. So I guess there's a little bit of both columns. Yeah, I was going to say um, that timing kind of works great. The timing, I mean, worked, it, the timing it, worked out great. It was like right when I thought it was about to be like the the moment of like, oh, this is over. Right. Like, oh, we got it. Don't worry. And then, um, I don't know. There, there, there are always going to be like supply chain issues. But um, I, I just think it's kind of uh, kind of funny that like when you work in these old analog formats that like even within a couple of years, there can be like these several micro panics of like oh no like, yeah. they can't make well, it anymore they literally can't make it anymore it's a, it's a similar thing with the vinyl industry and there's a new vinyl plant that opened up in chicago uh in in the past few months smashed plastic I believe yeah um our sister station wbbm did a great report on them but prior to them opening there are only like two or three places in the country where you could like get vinyl made or find the parts to actually make a vinyl record. Mm-hmm. So you ran into similar issues with production times lagging because the capital just didn't exist. Yeah, there there are a few more than three, but like in terms of the big, big ones, it's just like there are only two that I can think of that are the big ones. There's like RTI and United. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there are a lot of like smaller, more boutique ones. Um, but yeah, the like maintaining of those machines is like a very hot topic issue. It's like yeah. how do we keep this... I mean, for records, some of that stuff is like 1950s, 1960s technology. Right. It's like, how do we keep this 60s tech running and keep up with this like demand that we haven't seen in such a long time? So there's there's a lot of um, there's a lot of issues with the production of physical goods that uh, make me jealous of these net labels. Sometimes. <laughs> well, you mentioned National Audio said they're repurposing the strips on credit cards. Yeah, they to turn into tape. Card machines. I, I think they just like use the credit card machines and re refurbish them so that they're spitting out tape instead. Like, yeah, that's like that's what they're using to, because it's like the the actual tape material is like a, a thin strip of plastic with metal caked onto it. Okay. Um. So I think that the credit card machine part is like where they're magnetizing that plastic. And is this something that they're just using as a solution right now? to keep on producing tape or is that where it's going because this this, the, it doesn't exist anymore this is currently the only solution and they are the only people manufacturing tape stock in the entire world wow and supplying everybody maybe there's, there's other company duplication.ca which is a canadian based tape duplicator last i checked they still had some of their korean stockpile uh-huh. left but it's no one else no one's manufacturing this stuff and no one's gonna like go and buy a bunch of like sealed Maxell tapes and just rip out right, <laughs> the cassette right. content. Like it's um it, it seems that like unless someone else comes in and steps in, we are like only having one producer of tape for So get your tapes while they're hot. Yeah. Well, get, you got. <laughs> get, get them while they're hot and put in your order roughly three months in advance. Yeah. <laughs> well you know, we, we we just talked about the technical side of you know tape production, and thank you for providing that. I had I, I had no idea that it was in um, you know such a limited fate from there. But for those for those that are listening that maybe newer to tapes, you know, I think a lot of a lot of people can remember what tapes were, how to play a tape. But let's just say you want to uh, you want to get into it. You're seeing you're seeing your friends pulling out some cassette tapes. Give me a cassette tape starter pack. What equipment do you need? Mm-hmm. Where do you go to get cassettes? 
what's the best way to store or transfer tapes and what's the best way to take care of them? So one thing I will say before I get into the equipment that you'll need is that um, a lot of people in my parents' generation, my parents are um, in their early 60s, they remember the sort of um, negative aspects of tape, which are the the bad hiss, the bad sounds, the unspooling. And those are like very much like 70s and, and early 80s cassette problems that were very much like corrected. Mm-hmm. Um, that they started working with better metal, better plastic, that the, the players got better, and that sort of all of these... Um, all of these sort of uh, gripes that people have with the format historically are um, not things that are actually true of modern cassettes. Hmm. So that, that's one thing I just want to say really quickly before I tell you to go out and spend a bunch of money to buy this stuff. That like tapes that are, ma- especially tapes made in the 2000s and beyond, are an in- are an incredibly hi-fi format. Mm-hmm. Um, some of them, especially the Chrome tapes, have the best bass response and treble response of any physical. Of any physical analog format, of course, CD has the full audio spectrum, but mm. uh, Chrome tape could have better frequency response than a record, theoretically. Now, um, you kind of have two options here with your, your tape route, and the the easiest thing to do if you're just a little bit curious about this would be just to get a Walkman. Mm-hmm. Um, now, your audio quality isn't going to be as good with that, of course, um, but Walkmans are available new, I believe, Tascam. And Teak and Sony all still make new ones, as well as a couple other companies. Um, that's what I would say to do if you're just like a little bit curious about it. And you d- let's say you don't have any sort of home listening setup, like if you only have like a Bluetooth speaker or something, or listen to all your stuff from your laptop. Um, you're probably not going to go out and buy a stereo, anyways. Now, if you do have a receiver, which a lot of people will. Um, Tape decks are super available at thrift stores. That's the first place I would recommend looking. That You can get tape decks that were hundreds and hundreds of dollars, often ones that are pretty minty um, at thrift stores, hmm. garage sales, that kind of stuff. I've picked up a number of them that way. And then also um, Tascam, Teak, and this other company, Pyle, P-Y-L-E, they all have modern tape decks, both single and dual, that I believe are between like two and 300 bucks. Um, so you'll need a receiver and you'll need speakers as well. In terms of taking good care of your tapes, I think that it's a much easier format to take care of than records or CDs. For like my records, I have to clean them pretty regularly and they get scratched up. For tapes, it's really about temperature control and making sure that you have a good tape player. Now, if you have like a really bad tape player and a lot of Walkmans are kind of infamous for this, like... Yeah, it can unspool. Mm-hmm. That the unspooling is an issue that you will face, especially with bad equipment. Now, it doesn't happen very much. I've probably, amongst like modern cassettes that I've had, I feel like I've only had one unspool ever. And that it unspooled in the moment that that specific cassette deck like bit the bucket. Yeah. <laughs> like, um,. And for older tapes, I've had it happen a couple of times. I had a Neil Young Harvest tape bust out that I yeah. remember, um, and that was on a Walkman. So it's really just about making sure that it doesn't get too hot, that if it is too hot, it will melt. Um, people that leave tapes in their cars and live in the South probably have some really wonky things. Yeah. Um, but yeah, my, my home setup is that I have a receiver that my tape deck, my record player, my CD player 
my TV and aux jack are all hooked up into, and it's it's really super easy to use. Um, but yeah, the, the, that's that would be my advice. Like starting off, go with a Walkman, check it out, see if you like it. If you're a hi-fi person, just find that tape deck, go to yard sales. Like uh, the the last tape deck I remember getting was at a yard sale from like probably a 75 year old woman. She had a tape deck that looked like it was really not used that much. I asked her about it. She's like, yeah, we bought this in the mid nineties when we like, we did, we redid our living room and we barely used it cause we used the CD player. Mm-hmm. So there are a lot of tape players that are out there that are like that. Um, and talk to your family, talk to your aunts and uncles. Someone has one. in Yeah. <laughs> like, and they're, it's it's good tech that it will hold up. Yeah, well, it's it's uh that that's a that's interesting because it seems like one of those things that probably got back in the day, forgot about, and hey, look, it can be useful and mm-hmm. actually pretty good quality too. So, much like with the resurgence of vinyl records, you had the record store that was always there, but you're getting people who come out um, for the first time because they hear about how cool it is. Can people go to record stores and find a tape selection? You know, even an increased mm-hmm. selection, um, or is that still something that you got to do either in person at a venue or online? Yeah, there are definitely record stores that stock tapes. Um, it's not every store, um, but it, it's more of a niche thing. Now, the the biggest stores like Reckless, Amoeba, places like that have excellent tape selections, mm-hmm. both used and new. Um, Reckless stocks all of our stuff if you're in the city and want to check it out. Um, but the the more like like used record e places or like places run by the sort of dudes that think that all tapes sound bad because they listened in the seventies there there is a sort of bias of sort of record people yeah. against tapes maybe more so than like your average consumer they're like the way to listen to music is on this vinyl record and like that's it but um. Yeah, I would say that many, many stores will stock tapes and that we have a number of store partners that we've worked with over over the years. Right. Now, but, but yeah, it's 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 a smaller section. It's like you said earlier, it's kind of we'll be in the corner of the store or in a weird spot um next to the VHS tapes, right? Yeah, next to the VHS tapes <laughs> or like in just like a weird section, laser discs or like in the sort of dirty corner near the bathroom, like all sorts of things. Like um one one store I want to plug really quickly that I think of as my favorite record store in the country is in um, the Boston area. It's called Deep Thoughts JP. It's in uh, Jamaica Plain. And they have an enormous cassette selection that is all in shelving, like, above records. So hmm. they're very much, like, on display. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's – if you're into bizarre music, that's just, like, the number one place to go. But also if you're a – Deadhead, that's a total place to go because they have a Grateful Dead night every Friday. Oh, cool. Very cool. <laughs> and a plug. Uh, gotta, yeah, I guess I guess we'd be remiss if we didn't mention that we're recording this the day after Robert Hunter's passing. And uh, it's, you know, we'll, we, could, we could have another hour-long conversation on the Grateful Dead, which we won't subject our listeners to, but have to give a, a, a special shout-out and tribute to Robert Hunter, who played such a monumental impact on the music world. As I wrote in a blog post yesterday at 93XRT.com, you know, he may not be a household name to you, but if you've heard any Grateful Dead music, he's left his imprint. Yeah, there's like a whole group of people that his words are more impactful to than the Bible. Mm-hmm. So it was it was a very sad day for myself and many included. Yeah. But um, 
yeah, since, since we're talking about this really quickly, I did. I saw this band last night, my friend's band, Terrapin Flyer, and they put on a really fun late night show to celebrate his life. And I think we all kind of walked out realizing what we've all known since um, Jerry passed away and that it's like this music is like more important than any of the people that have ever played it and that it's like such an important part of the American fabric. Right. And just to quickly tie this in with cassettes, I will say that um, one of the things that these sort of um, tapes are back articles will never talk about is the importance of the bootleg. Yeah. That like the, the, and you, you, you were hitting on this too, the sort of DIY aspect of it, the ability to tape at home, the ability to, um, to make your own tapes was a really important thing for that. And that I also think that bootlegs were part of this thing that I'm talking about that kept tapes alive in this sort of uh, period that the, industry at large left it but the medium behind the, right like, the experimental musicians are home taping and making on their own these bootlegs are still being traded that it's still a beloved format but it's just kind of pushed aside by the shinier cds right well and you, you even saw larger artists continue to embrace it i mean we talked about the grateful dead you'd always have the taper section at their concerts mm-hmm. you'd build a network of fans just by trading tapes of the show even more content well contemporary air quotes because they've been around for a while artists like fish and dave matthews band would encourage fans to come to the show tape them and then trade them with people as a means for spreading their music Mm -hmm. so you know as you talk about the bootlegs cassettes were critically important in that factor and in artists like fish building their fan base totally and it's um all these things kind of tie in to the the big scale bands we're talking about right now and the smaller scale that we've been talking about this whole time that like the the portability the shareability of cassettes just leads towards people coming together and using it as a way to share their beloved music now we grew up you know disclosure we're young naive stupid so you can shake your fist at us all you want <laughs> anyway Disclaimer, we're in our thirties. We're not that. We're like, we're, yeah, we're, and, we're like approaching media. Well, depending depending who you, depending who you're talking about, we're young uh, and don't know anything, or we're old farts. So <laughs> we'll leave it at that. But we grew, you know, growing up during the nineties was the era of CDs. Yes, tapes were around, but as we begun to have our musical tastes shaped, it was done through either via listening to the radio or getting a CD. And tapes were kind of an afterthought. Now it's funny that you mentioned national audio because I have a quote here from. President Steve Stepp, who in an interview said their biggest group of consumers or end users, as he said, are the under 35 age group. Uh, I'll read his direct quote really quick. He said, the end users are the under 35 age group. These are people who grew up with the MP3s and earbuds, and that's what they thought music sounded like. And then at some point in in time, they listened to grandpa's open reel tapes or cassettes (laughs) or maybe his LPs, and they heard real analog music, and they thought, wow. That's what music sounds like. The retro revolution is part of it, but the second thing is a realization that we really got away from something good when we gave up analog audio. And people now who have heard the two types prefer it. Relating to, we're talking about CDs, I mean, I think, I remember owning some tapes when I was young, like Raffi CD, Raffi Mm -hmm. tapes when I was five years old. But my music tapes were shaped, like I said, by the radio and CDs, so... I think it's not a critical point is that, you know, we were around when this technology was there or this medium was there, but it was never really something that we turned to or was at the forefront. And now that you hear it, it lends hand in hand with you talking about being more high five recordings available on it. It's like, wow, this is actually fantastic. 
For sure. It, and and the, the warmth of it, I think, is something that a lot of people will think that word warmth is sort of an unquantifiability, and it is. Um, but when you're A, when, if you A, B it, and this dude Steve that you're talking about, I, there's another interview I remember seeing of him on, on YouTube where he's just like, we played 100 people, the, the thing on MP3 and on tape, and 98 of them chose tape. And I, I do think that that is, like, sensible. I think yeah. it, it does sound better than the MP3. And why? Who knows? I, I think that a lot of people would say something like, you can't make a true sound wave with zeros and ones. Mm-hmm. If you zoom in on a digital sound wave all the way that you start to see how the lines connect versus like this big smooth line. Mm-hmm. But um, I think that uh, I think that one of the things that is kind of not taken into account in a lot of these sort of um, trying to sum up like why do people like this? Why do they why do they do this? Is that with with streaming media when you are deciding what to listen to, you you load up your app or whatever and you get that search bar and you're like, oh no, what do I do? What do I do here? And if, if you don't have a plan, you're going to revert to something you probably listened to a lot of times or something that you've been meaning to listen to or something that you probably just listened to like a couple times ago. But when you have like a library of music that's your own, you can just make a choice. Yeah, <laughs> It's like... It's like the rental store effect that when you're um, when you're given the infinite buffet of options, it becomes paralyzing. Yeah. But if you look at your shelf of like 50 things, you can just like scan it, be like that one and put it in and you put it in your tape deck. And if you're lucky like me, it'll play continuously and auto flip until (laughs) you want to turn it off. And then you have your thing. Um, I think that a lot of these sort of, uh, Cassettes are back, sort of um, think pieces like to focus on this nostalgia aspect. And he even talks about it, but it's like, yeah, when we were kids, like CDs were the thing. Like, yeah. Like neither of us are really that nostalgic for tape. For right. me, it's like not nostalgic at all. Well, it's, a, it's about like, it's about the, the strengths of the format and the, the, the beauty of the format. Well, that's why I want to question why nostalgia really plays a factor in this, because we grew up with CDs. You mentioned your parents having really negative perceptions on cassettes where it was all crappy quality and, mm-hmm. you know, it'd spool out and just these negative thoughts on it, where when we grew up, it was all on CDs. I mean, I, I, I still love CDs, partially because I could go to uh, one record store in Evanston that's now closed, um, Third Hand Tunes. They used to have, like, this excellent cd selection i could walk home with a 20 take go there with a 20 dollar bill walk home with like 10 cds and it would all be great but growing up i never had you know tapes where i look back on like uh you know like the vcr it's like oh yeah this is totally a thing in my childhood i can mm-hmm. relate to i didn't have that and i suspect a very small portion of the population actually did yeah I, I, the the people that are a bit older than us as early 30-somethings, people that are in their later 30s, I think have more of this tangible nostalgia connection with tapes than we do. And that, yeah, it's like you, you were talking about how you had a Raffi tape, and I'm thinking about some of the tapes that I have from my childhood that are still left over. And it is stuff more so from early childhood. It's like, it's, um, I remember Pokemon. Yeah. (laughs) uh, The Pokemon movie soundtrack, um, cassettes that the guy who is the musical leader at Banner Day Camp put out um 
that's one for you Chicago people. <laughs> um, stuff like that, yeah. Um, it's all this wacky stuff. And that, yeah, by the know? time we were like actually trying to like construct our own music identity, we were definitely going to Best Buy and Secondhand Tunes, Dr. Wax, places like that to um, to get the the CDs. And I, I remember buying Beck Odelay on CD, but I don't remember buying the Pokemon soundtrack yeah. on tape. <laughs> like that was just like there. So the the nostalgia thing I think is kind of tied into um, that Simon Reynolds book, that Retromania book. And I don't know if you ever read that, but that was like a big like cultural event when it came out in the probably around like the 2011 or something. Mm-hmm. And I think that that got everyone thinking about like the nostalgia cycle. But for us, like the tapes that we put out, at least in my estimation, are very futuristic, are trying to look like a future object. It's not like um, this thing where you take Neil Young artwork and you sh- you take the square and you shrink it so it's so small and you have liner notes that you can't even read. Like, right. It's not about this... Um, third tier format this cheapo format it's about like this is the object this is like the true beautiful object and um there's there's no comparison right right well doug first i want to thank you for taking the time out and 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 chatting with me today about cassette tapes i mean we could we could go on all day but we have thank you for having me marty it's it's, it's a pleasure to hang we have we have technical limits where our computer won't allow us to store continuous (laughs) broadcast (laughs) coverage because this isn't on the radio it's a podcast but if you want to find more of Houseu Mountain and the work that Doug does, the music that he puts out, you can go to HouseuMountain.com or, I mean, you guys, as you mentioned before, are active on social media of Definitely. all platforms. How, how can people find you? Yeah, we're Houseu Mountain, which is H-A-U-S-U, Mountain. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. We're on Instagram with just Houseu Mountain. And you can listen to all of our music on Bandcamp for free. Um, you can stream on all of the zones but that will be harder to find because you got to search all the individual artists but um yeah house mountain at gmail.com if you want to email me and talk about this uh would love to hear from you yeah well and you guys mentioned you have a pretty busy you've had a pretty busy year already um you know how many uh you know people that may want to check you out how often can they expect releases from you guys uh we are releasing at least monthly and try to have two releases a month okay like, usually it's like kind of alternating between like two releases a month, one release a month, two releases a month, one a month. So Still pretty frequent though. I mean that's that's a very very impressive cycle. We 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 try to keep it try to keep it active, but um the the label that I worked for when I was uh first first out of college, they were doing more like 3 a month every month on LP. Wow. So I'm just like um I'm still trying to catch up. Yeah, well, we, we, at XRT, we've you know we've we've done a lot of stuff with Thrill Jockey in the past. Um, you know, it's great, great label puts out great music, but they they've set a high standard. So I think if you guys you guys are trying to match that, those are good aspirations. Um, I just am trying to get better every day. That, that's all I can do. <laughs> as we as we all should. Very good point. Um, well, Doug, thank you, thanks again for joining us today. Um, as I mentioned beforehand, you can find his music on HowSueMountain.com or anywhere on social media or Bandcamp. Just search Houseu Mountain. If you want to follow me on Twitter, you can do so at Marty Rosenbaum. Be sure to follow 93XRT on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all at 93XRT. And if you haven't done so yet, subscribe to the Inside the Archives podcast on Apple Podcasts or on Radio.com. It's free. No need to spend a single dime on it. All you need to do is just search for Inside the Archives. Hit subscribe and find every single episode that we've released to date. So thank you, everyone, again, for tuning in. And until next time, I'm Marty Rosenbaum.
T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.